if I'm going to have to pay a lot of tax when I sell, why would I want to sell? So instead, I'm going to hold on to property, which means there's going to be less inventory to choose from. What happens if you're a painter and there's fewer houses being painted? What happens if you're a title company? There's fewer real estate closings. All of those things are going to reduce your income, reduce the taxes that you pay, reduce the amount of money in the federal government. So that's why people have been very concerned with this. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, investors? And welcome to episode 241 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Dave Foster on the show. Dave was our guest back on episode 161, where he talked about the basics of the 1031 exchange and how we as real estate investors can use it to our benefit. In today's episode, Dave will talk about the potential elimination of the 1031 exchange and the implications that it could have for the entire real estate industry and to the economy as a whole. So if you want to learn about the latest news about the 1031 exchange and how it could affect you as an investor, then you need to listen to this episode. And this real estate market is still incredibly hot. So if you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan for rental properties with rates as low as 4%, then you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener, and I'll give you a discount on our processing fee. And now, on to the show. Dave, welcome back to the show. For those of us who haven't heard him before, Dave was actually back on the show, back on episode 161. We informed us everything that we need to know about the 1031 exchange. Dave, welcome back to the show. And for those of us who haven't heard you yet, go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Uh, That's awesome. It's great to be here again, Sean. So for those of you that didn't get a chance to, uh, to watch the first time, I'm Dave Foster and I'm a qualified intermediary for 1031 tax-deferred real estate exchanges, which are basically a tax avoidance tool that allows investors to sell real estate that they either have highly appreciated or has depreciated a lot and use the proceeds to go buy new investment real estate and not pay tax in the middle. Instead, they get to use that money to go buy more real estate so that it benefits them. Remember, uh, Sean, who it was that called that the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest? Einstein? Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. Smart guy he was. And that's, in essence, what the 1031 exchange is. So that's the world that I've lived in for over 20 years, for myself and for others. Yeah, so for some context, you know, if you were to buy or sell, let's say, stocks, let's say you made a lot of money and a lot of gains on your stocks, when you sell it to then buy something else, you actually have to pay taxes on your capital gains. Typically, it's going to be like 15 or 20% depending on your tax bracket. But with 1031 exchange, what you can do is you can sell your real estate, take those gains, not pay that 15 or 20%, and then use all that to buy your next piece of real estate, allowing you to buy basically a bigger piece of property for the same amount of sale. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then what compounds then, of course, is the next time you sell, you keep deferring and using the first and you defer the second chunk of gain, and that thing just snowballs forward. And so at the end of your career, you're going to be making a huge chunk of your retirement income off of deferred tax. 
that you still owe because it's only deferred, but it is indefinitely deferred. And I think this is going to lead us right into today because under current law, if you die owning that real estate, your heirs get it at what is called a step up in basis, which means all of the game disappears when they inherit it. In other words, you can defer the tax throughout your life and at the end, give it to your heirs and the tax disappears. And we call that the four D's of 1031 investing. Have I shared that with you guys before? Yep, I think so. The four D's, yep. Defer, 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 and then die. <laughs> and the tax goes away. It is the most powerful estate planning and wealth building tool that exists for real estate under the tax law. Yeah, and then just to clarify, when he says uh, your gains disappear, it doesn't mean like you lose your gains, right? Of course, you guys keep that money in your family. It just means that for tax purposes, you no longer have a gain or a taxable gain. The tax disappears, right? Yeah, if they were to sell that property the very next day that they inherited it, then if they sold that market value, then they wouldn't have to pay any taxes on all that deferred gains that they have. Basically, your parents didn't pay. Exactly. So let's go into potential changes. And that's why we have you on here today. There's been a lot of talk about potential changes in the 1031 exchange. And uh, again, like you said, change in the step up in basis. So I'll let you go ahead. You're the expert. You know a lot of stuff. I'll just ask you questions based on what I don't know. <laughs> you know, always be wary of the person that says they're an expert on Washington, D.C. Because that's a strange animal. Um, I know a little bit about that part of the tax code, but What's funny is this whole, I mean, my gosh, Sean, the last two years, what a ride. It's been absolutely insane, hasn't it? Um, we've seen a pandemic. We've seen continued amazing growth in the real estate markets. We've seen massive changes in Washington, which kind of forebodes policy changes that may or may not be to our benefit. It's just, there's, it, there's too much to keep up with, it feels like. And so much of it is really speculation and wish. And so I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the, uh, the saying by Gideon Tucker, who was an attorney of the last century, who said this. He said, nobody's person, property, or liberty is safe as long as Congress is in session. <laughs> in other words, as long as they're making laws, look out. Because the phrase... I'm from the government, I'm here to help, is about the biggest oxymoron that there is, right? Mm -hmm. So for us, though, you can rail about things, you can complain about things, or you can prepare for things and take advantage of opportunities. And that's what people have been doing with the 1031 Exchange for over 100 years. It's one of the original parts of the tax code. And originally it existed because our nation was transferring or uh, evolving from the agricultural industry age into the industrial age. And so farmers were starting to consolidate and industrialists were starting to build factories. And those two things both need lots of capital. And so when the tax code was put in place, especially for farmers, if a farmer was to sell his land so that he could go and buy a bigger piece of property, 
prior to Section 1031, many times the tax that they would have had to have paid would take so much of their sales price that they could not afford the bigger piece of land. So what happened? It stagnated. Along came 1031, and now small farmers or new farmers who wanted to get in could buy land. The farmer that had that land now could afford to go buy a bigger piece of land. So we were encouraging growth in the agricultural industry. And that's been the premise of 1031 forever and a day. You start with a small factory. If you can use the tax dollars as well as the rest of the sales price, you can go buy a bigger factory. You can grow. The economy then can prosper. And in real estate, that's especially true because think about everybody who's involved in a real estate transaction. It's not just the sale of the real estate. It's the realtors. It's the appraisers. It's the title companies. It's the real estate attorneys. It's the vendors who put the property into shape to sell. All of those people are paying tax every time there's a real estate transaction and they make money. So 1031 for decades has been seen as a massive economic generator of both activity and income and a preserver of wealth so that the industry can grow. So that's kind of the background on where it all came. Now, what you heard and, of course, what caused us all a lot of sleepless nights during the election was the promise by the current president that he wanted to, first of all, eliminate 1031. Now, obviously, what that was going to mean then was what? If I'm going to have to pay a lot of tax when I sell, why would I want to sell? So instead, I'm going to hold on to property, which means there's going to be less inventory to choose from. What happens when there's less inventory to choose from? Prices go up. Exactly. And you think you're unhappy about how prices are going up now? If you're trying to buy, try to buy if there's even less homes or investment properties going on the market. What happens if you're a painter and there's fewer houses being painted? What happens if you're a title company? There's fewer real estate closings. All of those things are going to reduce your income, reduce the taxes that you pay, reduce the amount of money in the federal government. So that's why people have been very concerned with this is because of how it's going to impact and stagnate the amount of economic generation. To put it in perspective, there's about 500,000 1031 exchanges every year. So it's not a small industry and that can have a huge impact. So during the campaign, and of course we all know what campaign promises are, uh, nothing but words, right? Until you can get the votes together to do it. During the campaign, President Biden was going to eliminate it. Once he was hired or hired, once he was elected, it became an issue of the noises in the hallway started to get through. And then from eliminating 1031, it became, let's get rid of 1031 for the largest investors, for the ultra rich, because that seems to be who we want to pick on these days. Here's the problem, Sean. The average sale price of a 1031 property 
is between three and four hundred thousand dollars. That does not sound like the ultra rich, does it? Mm-hmm. So if you eliminate it for the ultra rich, what impact does that have? Almost nothing on that side of things. So talk then quickly pivoted to, well, let's limit the amount of capital gain that can be 1031 in a given year. And I think that one of the current proposals being floated out there is $500,000 in gain every year. Well, if the average sale price of a property is three to $400,000, how much are you really going to be able to limit? Where are you going to collect the tax from? Because how many of those transactions are going to have more than $500,000 in gain? Very, very few. What's going to be the unintended consequence if that happens? Again, people will hold on to properties more if there's more gain. And if there's less gain, they'll simply sell. And one of the tactics of a 1031 exchange is to do what is called a diversification exchange, where you sell one piece of property and you buy several smaller properties. So what's that going to do to folks like you and I who make a market buying smaller investment properties? There's going to be so much more competition. It'll be hard to buy the smaller ones. Yeah. It's just, it's going to be bad news, bad news, bad news without any of what they hope to accomplish. Now, that's just one guy's opinion, which is me. And since you're not paying me today, it's free advice. So it's worth every penny you're paying for. (laughs) So- Maybe let's go back to the beginning. Like, why would, I guess, President Biden propose to remove the 1031 exchange? What's What does he have to gain from that? I think that originally it was seen as low-hanging fruit, honestly. Um, what's, what's funny, Sean, is that every president that I have been under for 22 years of doing this has talked publicly about getting rid of 1031 exchanges. Every one of them. So that's two Bushes, Trump, Obama. They've all mused about getting rid of it. None of them have. And the reason why is that they start to find out that by eliminating it, you actually decrease the amount of revenue that the Internal Revenue Service collects because of all the ancillary taxes that go there. But that's the motivation because it's seen as low-hanging fruit where, oh, we can collect the tax that they get to defer. Well, that's the smallest amount of tax that's out there. Um, Say someone makes $100,000 on a piece of property. It's a pretty nice game. If you're in a a state other than yours with reasonable taxes, you're going to maybe pay 15% federal and maybe a 5% state capital gain rate, 20%. So you're going to have a tax of $20,000. Now, if the property being sold is say $300,000, what's going to be the real estate commissions off of that? About $15,000. What's the title company going to charge for title insurance? Two to $3,000. Now we're at 18. What's the cleaners going to cost to clean the property and the painters and the vendors? Another five, $6,000. Now we're over 20. What's a real estate attorney going to charge? to vet all the paperwork and the documents. Another couple thousand. All of a sudden, in all of that income, you're talking close to 
30 to $35,000 at ordinary income tax rate, not capital gains rate. So basically, if the 1031 exchange on that transaction was eliminated, the Internal Revenue Service would make about $20,000 more in capital gains tax. They would lose almost $15,000 in ordinary income tax from all of the other transactional vendors that would have been involved if there was a sale. Yeah. So they're not actually making as much as they think they are. Exactly. But that's all got to percolate through the Senate and the legislature and the the executive branch because they all have to look at the numbers and decide it for themselves. Because if they at first blush, it sounds really good, doesn't it? Let's get rid of the 1031. Let's generate a lot of tax dollars and put them to use for to help people. I mean, I guess people are also saying like having a 1031 exchange makes it unfair for people who aren't already in real estate. Like it lowers the barrier to entry for new people who can get in without having to worry about these big quote unquote, you know, 1031 exchanges who are buying properties for a higher price because they now have the ability to. Well, I, you know, I, that's kind of funny. I, I mean, I can see that, but here's how short-sighted that is. So let's say that I'm that guy that's mad because there's 1031 and I can't get into real estate. If we eliminate 1031 and we cut the amount of transactions by 500,000 a year, how many fewer properties are available to me to buy? And if it's the lower price properties, isn't that what I'm looking for as a new investor to try and get into? So it's actually doing the exact opposite. It will hurt first time investors dramatically. Now, what we haven't even started to talk about, this is the deep weeds, is how 1031 exchanges can act as a mitigation against inflation. I don't know if you saw the numbers that just came out today, but in the second quarter of this year, the economy grew at 6.2%. Nice. It's crazy. Oh, my goodness. To me, what that says is that's inflation. Because why? We've pumped trillions and trillions of dollars into the economy. Now, here's what 1031 exchanges do that most people don't even understand. Because the 1031 exchange encourages what? The sale followed by the purchase of real estate. I am not taking any money off the table. It is all going forward in the purchase. Whereas if I print money, I'm adding money to the economy, but the price of goods then simply rises to meet that. And that's what inflation is, is an overabundance of money or an increasing amount of cash that's trying to do the same job that the money was doing before. So it's $2 trying to do the same thing that $1 did before. And that's why prices rise. With the 1031 exchange, it encourages the velocity of those transactions so that instead of holding onto the property and having to print another dollar to work for me, I'm making $1 work twice as hard. So it actually fights inflation. Now, all this stuff is so esoteric that you can imagine how they've got to wrap their arms around it. 
But that's the first and biggest threat and sort of why and where it came from. Where you you come from, this is especially poignant because I think I saw a stat the other day that the average, in order to meet the $500,000 threshold, that way in California was only going to be a 39-acre farm. Now let's think about everybody in the Imperial Valley, everybody in Modesto and the wine regions selling thousands of acres. How can they do that without paying that massive tax and affecting their ability to go buy more and bigger properties? So I think it's really going to club the small California farmer horribly because they can't afford to do it. They'll end up getting capped and they'll have to find some other way to do it. So obviously, I like the 1031. Those are the things that I think of that I think are going to be detrimental. So where are we in this phase? Where are we in this whole process? When can we expect this to happen, if it does happen? Well, first, they've all got to agree on who gets what parking spot. And they haven't been able to do that. Secondly, they got to figure out all kinds of other things. But we've got the three branches. And the nice thing is that these three branches all have checks and balances against each other. So before the tax code can be changed, it's got to be voted upon. Uh, It's got to be presented by the executive branch. It's got to be voted on by both the House and the Senate. And then it's got to be signed by the president as well. Now, what worried me when we had the election, of course, was I've always been so happy when the president and the Senate and the Congress are all different parties because they don't play well together, do they? And when that happens, usually it's gridlock for four years. They don't accomplish much of anything. And all of us who are out in the business world managed to just keep doing business just fine. I was worried when one party gained control of all three branches. There is a Democrat in the presidency. The Senate has a razor slim majority on the Democratic side. And the House of Representatives has a, what is it, I think a six-person majority. So in theory, they could all align and make this happen pretty quickly. But what we're seeing, Sean, is that they're splintering all over the place. There's certain Democrats that are acting more like Republicans in their rhetoric and decision-making. There are Democrats that think that this isn't even close to going far enough. And so they're mad at the president because he's not doing more. So they're all still just kind of fighting back and forth. So it just gives me heart every day. It's like, please, just keep the gridlock going. Where we're at right now is that they actually, there's a bipartisan committee that finally approved, in principle, a spending bill. Now, that doesn't, that's not the vote. That's just a group of people that got together and said, here's how much we want to spend. And in true government fashion, which is different than how you and I work. The government doesn't look at how much money they have to spend and then decide where to spend it. They go and decide what they want to spend and then they go and figure out where they can get it. 
which I'm not a fan of that kind of thinking. But until they decide formally how much they're going to spend, they're not going to be able to decide where to get that from. And as long as that happens, 1031 is still going to be safe. Now, once they get the spending decided, the infrastructure bill, et cetera, et cetera, then they will start looking for where to get the money. And that's when I think we're going to have to really look seriously at what's going to happen with 1031. So it's a little bit between it. There's a little bit more road between here and there, and hopefully it's rocky for everybody. Yeah, so I guess as it is today, there's no guarantee that will even come to fruition. And even if it does, it'll probably take, what, at least a year plus for us to even know. And we'll, we'll have time to understand that it's going to come to. Yeah, right. I wouldn't see anything happening in 2021. Uh, I think at the outside chance it gets voted in 22, then it would go into effect probably for 23. But don't forget, we're already making huge noise out there that there could be a realignment of the majorities because of the midterm elections in 22. So, I mean, there is so much up in the air about this that what I tell people is you can give yourself, you know, a headache all day long by thinking about what might happen or you can use the moves that you can do right now to benefit yourself. And then when something changes for sure, respond and figure out what to do with that. So we can prognosticate all we want, but I think it's tough to do that right now. It's probably best to take a deep breath, take advantage of the tools that are there now, and then wait and see what happens. That's good to know. And I think you're mentioning earlier in the episode about a change in step up in basis. Is that a separate policy from this? That actually is. That's the one truly that worries me the most. Uh, because that step up in basis it what is what gives all of us the opportunity to transfer generational wealth. And honestly, that's that's the dream of every parent, to help our children to have better lives than we did. That was my dad's dream, my grandfather's dream. It's my dream for my children. If you take away my ability to gather assets and wealth that I cannot give to my children, that's taking, it's limiting that opportunity to do that. And so rightfully so, there's a lot of backlash against that, but of all the proposed revisions, I think that one's gathering the most steam because it typically has a sunset um, anyways where the level rises and then it dies at a certain year. And then Congress has to reapportion it. And so what's happening now is it's close to that sunrise. So it's a fair game. And that truly would put a lot of money into the government's coffers, supposedly. Uh, but I got to think that there's probably some bright people that will start to create entities and trusts and things where the children can be a part of them and they outlast the parents. So I die, fine. My children inherit my companies instead of my real estate. 
there's ways of there's ways of doing that. We don't quite know what it's going to look like yet, but that's the one that worries me more because I think that could have a more serious impact on my ability to transfer generational wealth. And I think it's more likely. The other thing about that, Sean, is this one's really insidious because it is one of those things where the president could make it retroactive. So he could get it passed through late in 2021 and have it be retroactive for all of 2021. And if that were to happen, even if you and I did a 1031 exchange and deferred the tax and then I died and my children got the property, it would retroactively take that from them. And what that would mean is that my children, we may have a house that's been in our family for generations as a gathering place and anchor for the family. But my children have to sell it because they can't afford to pay the estate tax on it when they inherit it. I don't like that one at all. Doesn't sound good. And just to clarify for this one, uh, unlike the other laws that are kind of in place, this one, when it was proposed, it already had a time limit on it. Is that what you're saying? And the time limit is coming up? Yeah, typically the uh, the estate tax and taxes around the state all have calendars where it grows during the years and then ends. And Congress has to revote to start the clock over again. Mm, I see. So I guess for this one, um, what's the timeline for the change in step up in basis? You know, I should have looked that up before he came. I can't remember. Uh, so I'm not even going to hazard a guess. But it's within the next couple of years. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it's close anyways. So I guess, long story short, 1031 exchange doesn't seem like it's really going to be on the chopping block just yet. They need to kind of figure out everything before. And we're crossing your fingers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the setup basis is, you know, it could or could not disappear in the next year or two. So we should watch out for that. And then I guess do proper estate planning to kind of avoid any issues that might come up because of it. Right. There's plenty of tools that can help. And of course, this is why attorneys get rich because we need them to help us wade through all this stuff. Yeah. Honestly, Dave, this was amazing. Like, are there any other current events relating to 10th exchange that we should probably discuss today? You know, there's really, that's the amazing thing about this statute is that it is ridiculous retained its power and practice unscathed for over a hundred years. And the only thing that's truly happened to it, well, there's two things. In 1996, the IRS lost a lawsuit, so it became more user-friendly. And in 2017, um, this is an interesting trivia fact, the one president who you wouldn't think would do this, President Trump, actually limited the scope of 1031 exchanges with his Job Act in 2017, uh, Job and Tax Cut Act. He actually took away the part of 1031s that allowed you to 1031 exchange other property, like heavy equipment or jet airline airplanes, restaurant and hotel equipment. You used to be able to do the exact same thing to 1031 exchange them. And what he did was he gave us more favorable depreciation allowances for that kind of stuff. But then he took away the ability to 1031 exchange it. So just so you know, if President Trump ever sells his 747, he's going to pay a lot of tax on it. 
<laughs> All right. Keep it forever. All right, Dave. Well, thank you again so much for being on the show today. Do you have any last words of advice for our listeners before we finish up? You know, always carry an umbrella and plan for rain, but don't take it out until it rains. Nice. And Dave, how can people get in contact with you? Uh, you can catch us at our education portal, which is the 1031investor.com. Tons of good educational resources, opportunities for you to learn how to use 1031 strategically. Because until it goes away, it's the best thing going to help your portfolio now and to help your children later. Awesome. Well, Dave, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it and hope to have you again in the near future. Hopefully not because of the new change in 1031, but more just to inform everyone about how 1031 has going strong. Maybe we could just celebrate. Yeah, exactly. We'll be celebrating. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.